Chapter Four, Part Two of From Sail to Steam by Alfred Thayer Mahan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: The Naval Academy in Its Interior Workings, Practice Cruises, eighteen fifty-five to sixty, Part Two. Regarded by themselves, nothing can well be less important than the political opinions of one boy of eighteen to twenty but few things are more important if they are those of the mass of his generation for then they are the echo from many homes i believe from what i saw at the naval academy that mine were those of the large majority of the northern youth and that the very greatness of the concession which such were ready to make for the sake of the union should have warned the disunionists that the same love was capable of equally great sacrifices in the other direction they failed so to understand chiefly perhaps because they could not appreciate the living force of the simple sentiment never in their lifetimes if ever before had the union held the first place in the hearts of men of their section and such love as had been felt was already moribund overcome by supposed interest and local pride thus misled it was easy to believe that in the north controlled by considerations of advantage yielding would follow yielding even to permitting a disruption of the union a miscalculation of forces more fatal even than that of cotton is king but forces will often be miscalculated by those who reckon interest as more powerful than principle or than sentiment singularly enough considering the exodus of states rights officers from the navy at the outbreak of the war of secession my first service during it brought me into close relations with two captains both southerners whose differing points of view shed interesting light upon the varying motives which in times of stress determined men into a common path the first percival drayton a south carolinian had a strength of conviction on the question of slavery in itself and the wrong-headed course of the slave power as well as a strong devotion to the union all which were needed to keep a son of that extreme state firm in his allegiance i question however whether any other one of the seceding communities furnished as large a proportion of officers who stuck to the national flag chiefly among the older men a result scarcely surprising while the intensity of affection for the union necessary to withstand nearest relatives and the headlong sweep of separatist impulse where fiercest naturally throve upon the opposition which it met eliciting a corresponding tenacity of adherence to the cause it had embraced no more than that other southerner farragut did drayton feel doubt as to where he belonged in the coming struggle i cannot exactly see the difference between my relations fighting against me and i against them except that their cause is as unholy a one as the world has ever seen and mine just the reverse were the sword in the one hand powerful enough the secessionists would carry slavery with the other to the utmost parts of the union and i do not think the north has been at all too quick in stopping the movement i do not think there will ever be peace between the two sections until slavery is so completely scotched as to make extension a hopeless matter drayton stayed with us but a brief time 
his successor george b balch who still survives now the senior rear admiral on the retired list of the navy a man beloved by all who have known him for his gallantry benevolence and piety was equally pronounced and equally firm but his position illustrated and carried on my experiences at the academy and afterwards in the service and for the time confirmed my old prepositions he was fighting for the union assailed without just cause not against slavery nor for its abolition were the latter the motive of the war he would not be in arms this of course was the attitude of the government and of the people at large abolition which came not long after was a war measure simply received with doubt by many but which a few months of hostilities had prepared us all to accept my own conversion was early and sudden the ship had made an expedition of some fifty miles up a south carolina river in the course of which numerous negroes fled to her unlike drayton our captain was rather disconcerted i think at having forced upon him a kind of practical abolition in carrying off the slaves but his duty was clear as for me it was my first meeting with slavery except in the house servants of maryland superficially a very different condition and as i looked at the cowed imbruted faces of the field hands my early training fell away like a cloak the process was not logical i was generalizing from a few instances but i was convinced knowing how strongly my father had felt i wondered how i should break to him my instability but when we met i found that he too had gone over youngster as i still was i should have divined the truth that in assailing the union his best friend became his enemy to down whom abolition was good and fit as any other club my son he said i did not think i could ever again be happy should our country fall into her present state but now i am so absorbed in seeing those fellows beaten that i lose sight of the rest peculiar and personal association enhanced his interest for having been then over thirty years at the military academy there were very few of the prominent generals on either side who had not been his pupils the successful leaders were almost all from that school grant sherman thomas schofield on the union side lee jackson and the two johnstons on the confederate were all graduates not to mention a host of others only less conspicuous in the last analysis slavery may have been probably was the cause of the war but historically it was not the motive lincoln's words i will save the union with slavery or i will save it without slavery as the case may demand voiced the feeling prevalent in the military services and also the will of the great body of the northern people whom he profoundly understood and in his own mental advance illustrated i cannot but think that such an aim was more statesmanlike than would have been the attempt to overturn immediately and violently an entire social and economical system for the establishment of which the current generation was not responsible in the long run to allow the tares of bondage to stand with the wheat of freedom was wiser than the wish permanently to uproot it had become the definite policy of the enemies of slavery to girdle the tree 
by strict encompassing lines, leaving it to consequent sure process of decay. Its friends forced the issue. To the ones and to the others, the harvest of generations, in the form it took, came unexpected and suddenly, a day of judgment, a crisis like a thief in the night. It is a consummate proof of the accuracy of popular instinct, given time to work, that the uprising of 1861 rested upon recognition of the fact that the cause of the nation and of the world depended more upon the preservation of a single authority over all the territory involved, upon the consequent avoidance of future permanent oppositions, than it did upon the destruction of a particular institution, the life of which might be protracted, but under conditions of union must wane and ultimately expire. The gradual progress of decision by the American people was wiser than the abrupt action asked by foreign impatience, and abolition came with less shock and more finality as a military measure than it could as a political. Its advisability was more evident. If statesmanship is shown in bringing popular will to accord with national necessity, Lincoln was in this most sagacious. But not the least element in the tribute due him is that he was the barometer of popular impulse, measuring accurately the invisible force upon which depended the energy of that stormy period. Before taking final leave of my shore experiences at the Naval Academy, I will recall, as among them, the superb comet of the autumn of 1858, which we at the school witnessed evening after evening in October of that year, during the release from quarters following supper. After the lapse of so nearly a half-century, the survivors of those who saw that magnificent spectacle must be in a minority among their contemporaries, whether of that day or this. Since its disappearance, there has been visible one other notable comet, which I remember waking my children after midnight to see. But compared with that of 1858, whether in size or in splendor, it was literally as moonlight unto sunlight or, in impression, as water unto wine. As the astronomers compute the period of return for the earlier at two thousand years, more or less, we of that generation were truly singular in our opportunity of viewing this among the very few most magnificent of modern times. The tail, broadening toward the end, with a curve like that of a scimitar, was in length nearly a fourth of the span of the heavens, and its brightness that of a full moon. My memory retains the image with all the tenacity of eighteen. Corresponding in some measure to the summer encampment at the military academy, the naval gave the three months from July to September, inclusive, to shipboard and the sea. In both institutions the period was one of study interrupted in favor of outdoor work but at West Point it was accompanied by a degree of social entertainment impossible to ship conditions. There were two theories as to the conduct of the practice cruises. One was that they should be confined to home waters, where regular hours and systemized instruction in doing things would suffer little interference from weather. 
the other was to make long voyages preferably to europe leaving to the normal variability of the ocean and the watchful improvement of occasions the burden of initiating a youth into practical acquaintance with the exigencies of his intended profession personally i have always favoured the latter being somewhat of the opinion of the old practical politician never contrive an opportunity naturally an opportunist the experience of life has justified me in rather awaiting than contriving occasions one learns more widely and more thoroughly by reefing topsails when it has to be done than by doing it at a routine hour without the accompaniments of the wind the wet and the lurching which give the operation a tone and a tonic the real thing in short doubtless we may wait too long like micawber even for a reef topsail gale to turn up though the ocean can usually be trusted to be nasty often enough but on the other hand one over sedulously bent on making opportunity is apt to be too preoccupied to see that which makes itself truth doubtless lies between the extremes in my day long cruises had unquestioned preference and whatever their demerits otherwise they were certainly eye-openers even to those who like myself had obtained some intelligent impression of ships at sea an instruction in seamanship was then never attempted neither by work nor book until after the second year we went on board not knowing one mast from another so far as teaching went how far initial ignorance could go may be illustrated by an incident to be appreciated unluckily only by seamen which happened in my hearing we had then been nearly two months on board when one who had improved his opportunities was displaying his acquirements by the pleasing method of catechizing another he asked do you know what the topsail tie is the rejoinder perfectly serious was do you mean the cross tie the topsail tie being one of the principal ropes in a ship the ignorance was really symptomatic of character and had not the hero of it been long dead i would not have preserved it even incog i fear it may be cited against my view of practice cruises as proving that systematic training is better than picking up to which my reply would be that the picking up showed aptitude or the reverse if only some means could be devised of making it tell in selection as it assuredly did in character but at the beginning despite my little previous inklings we were all quite green i still recall the innocent astonishment when we anchored in hampton roads after the run down the chesapeake and the boatswain as by custom pulled around the ship to see the yards square and rigging taut semaphore signalling was not then used as later and his stentorian lungs conveyed to us distinct sounds bearing meanings we felt could never be compassed by us haul taut the main top bowlands haul taut the starboard fore to gallant sheet main top there send a hand up and square the bunt gaskets of the to gallant sail by jove said one of the admiring listeners there's seamanship for you we all silently agreed and i dare say many thought we might as well give it up and go home such excellence was not for us the subsequent process of picking up was attended sometimes by comical as well as painful incidents peter simple's experiences as told by marriott were not yet quite obsolete in practice a story ran of one 
not long before my date, who, having been sent on two or three bootless errands by unauthorized jesters, finally received from a person in due authority the absurd-sounding but legitimate message to have the jackasses put in the hawse-holes. Oh, no, he replied resentfully. I have been fooled often enough that I will not do. I can better vouch for another which happened on my first practice cruise. In a sailing ship properly planned, the balance of the sails is such that to steer her on her course, the rudder need not be kept more to one side than the other. The helm is then amidships. But error of design or circumstances, such as a faulty trim of the sails or the ship inclining in a strong side wind, will sometimes so alter the influencing forces that the helm has to be carried steadily on one side to correct the ship's disposition to turn to that side. She is then said to carry weather helm or lee helm, as the case may be, and the knowing ones used to assert noticeable differences of sailing in certain conditions. In many ships, to carry a little weather helm was thought advantageous, and it was told of a certain deck officer. He who repeated the story to me made the late Admiral Porter the hero, that the ship being found to sail faster in his watch than in any other, the commander sent for him and asked the reason. "'Well, sir,' replied the lieutenant, "'I will tell you my secret. "'As soon as the officer I relieve is gone below and out of sight, "'while the watch is mustering, "'I walk forward, look around at things generally, "'and say casually to the captain of the forecastle, "'Just slack off a little of this jib-sheet.' Then about ten minutes before eight bells, after the last log of the watch has been hove, while the men are rousing to go below, I go forward again and say, Come here, half a dozen of us, and get a pull of the jib sheet. And I turn the deck over to my relief, with the jib well flattened in. In result, the frigate during his watch, and his only, carried a weather helm. My own experience of sailing ships was neither prolonged enough nor responsible enough to estimate just what weight to attach to these impressions, but they existed. And, in any case, as the helm varying far from amidships showed something wrong, the question was frequently to the helmsman, how does she carry her helm? Varied sometimes to, what sort of helm does she carry? Now we had among our green midshipmen one from the west, tall angular swarthy with a coal-black eye which had a trick of cocking up and out giving a queer perplexed yet defiant cast to his countenance moreover he stuttered a little not from imperfection of organs but from nervous excitability we had also a lieutenant from far down east red-haired sanguine of complexion bony of structure who had a gesture of tossing his hair and head back and looking tremendously leonine and master of the situation monarch of all he surveyed the two were naturally antagonistic as was amusingly shown more than once but on this occasion the midshipman was at the lee wheel not himself steering but helping the steersman in the manual labour to him the lieutenant passing in his stride and tilting his chin in the air says mr blank what sort of helm does she carry blank who had never heard of weather or lee helms and probably was not yet recovered from the effects of the boatswain's seamanship twisted his eye and his head looking more than ever confounded and saucy and stammered i, I, I i'm not sure sir but i think it's a wooden one tableau 
as the French say. In position on board we were midshipmen indeed, in a sense probably somewhat different from that which first gave birth to the title. We were not seamen, and it could scarcely be claimed that we were in any full sense officers, much as we stuck to that designation. We stood midway. There was a tradition in the British service that a midshipman, though in training for promotion, did not, while in the grade, rank with the boatswain or gunner who had no future prospects and who, with the carpenter, stood in a class by themselves. Marriott, who doubtless drew his characters from life, tells us that the gunner who sailed with Mr. Midshipman Easy was strong on the necessity for the gunner mastering navigation, and had many instances in point where all the officers had been killed down to the gunner, who in such case would have been sadly handicapped by ignorance of navigation. I fancy the doubt seldom needed to be settled in service, the duties of midshipman and boatswain could rarely come into collision, if each minded his own business. By luck, just after writing these words, I, for the first time in my life, have found a plausible derivation for midshipman. It would appear that in the days immediately after the flood the vessels were very high at the two ends, between which there was a deep waste, giving no ready means of passing from one to the other. To meet this difficulty there were employed a class of men, usually young and alert, who from their station were called midshipmen, to carry messages which were not subject for the trumpet shout. If this holds water, like forecastle and afterguard and night heads, gives another instance of survival from conditions which have long ceased. Whatever the origin of his title, it well expressed the anomalous and undefined position of the midshipman. He belonged, so to say, to both ends of the ship, as well as to the middle, and his duties and privileges alike fell within the broad saying already quoted that what was nobody's business was a midshipman's. When appointed as such, in later days he came in with the hayseed in his hair and went out fit for a lieutenant's charge. But from first to last, whatever his personal progress, he remained, as a midshipman, a handy billy. He might be told, as Basil Hall's first captain did his midshipmen, that they might keep watch or not as they pleased, that is, that the ship had no use for them, or he might be sent in charge of a prize, as was Farragut when twelve years old, doubtless with an old seaman as nurse, but still in full command. Anywhere from the bottom of the hold to the truck top of the masts he could be sent, and was sent. Every boat that went ashore had a midshipman, who must answer for her safety, and see that none got away of a dozen men, whose one thought was to jump the boat and have a run on shore. Between times he passed hours at the masthead in expiation of faults which he had committed, or ought to have committed, to afford a just scapegoat for his senior's wrath. As Marriott said, it made little difference. If he did not think of something he had not been told, he was asked what his head was for. If he did something off his own bat, the question arose what business he had to think. In either case, he went to the masthead. Of course, at a certain age, one turns to mirth all things of earth as only boyhood can, and the contemporary records of the steerage brim over with unforced jollity, like that notable hero of Marriott's, who was never quite happy except when he was damned miserable. 
such undefined standing and employment taught men their business but provided no remedy for the miscellaneous social origin of midshipmen in the beginning of things they were probably selected from the smart young men of the crew often also from the more middle-aged in any event from before the mast even in much later days men passed backward and forward from midshipmen to lower ratings nelson is an instant in point when a man became a lieutenant he was something fixed and recognized professionally and socially he might fall below his station but he had had his chance in the british navy many most distinguished officers came from anywhere through the hawse holes as the expression ran and a proud boast it should have been at a time when every frenchman in his position had to be of noble blood what was all very well for captains and lieutenants once those ranks uh, were reached was not so easy for midshipmen we know in every walk of life the woes of those whose position is doubtful or challenged and what was said to his crew by sir peter parker an active frigate captain who was killed in chesapeake bay in eighteen fourteen i'll have you touch your hat to a midshipman's jacket hung up to dry curiously reminiscent of william tell and gessler's cap not improbably testifies to equivocalness even at that late date the social instinct of seamen is singularly observant and tenacious of their officers manners and bearing i have known one reproved for a disrespect say sullenly i have always been accustomed to sail with gentlemen in the instance the comment was just though not permissible deference might be conceded to the midshipman's jacket but it could not cover defects of a certain order the midshipman's berth, as attested by contemporary sketches, was peopled by all sorts in age, fitness, and manners. In one of the many tales I devoured in youth, a middle-aged shell-back of a master's mate, come in from before the mast, says with an oath to an aristocratic midshipman, Isn't my blood as red as yours? Still, even in the British Navy, with its fine democratic record, the social rank was more regarded than the military. His Majesty's ship so-and-so was commanded by John Smith Esquire, and I have heard this point of view stated by competent authority as accounting for the address George Washington Esquire, placed by Howe on the letter which Washington refused to accept because not carrying the rank conferred on him by Congress. This does not, uh, however, explain away the etc., etc., which followed on the cover john bing esquire admiral of the blue would thus be of higher consideration as esquire than as admiral even in our own service i remember an old log the pages of which were headed cruise of the u s ship preble commanded by j b blank esquire in the practice cruises the social question did not arise independent of the democratic tendency of all boys schools where each individual finds his level by natural gravitation the naval academy for reasons before alluded to has been remarkably successful in assimilating its heterogeneous raw material and turning out a finished product of a good average social quality beyond this social success or failure depends everywhere upon personal aptitudes which no training can bestow but 
as officers we were nondescript there were too many of us and for the most the object was to acquire a sufficient seaman's knowledge not an officer's yet uh, curiously enough so at least it seemed to me there was a disposition on the part of some to be jealous of any supposed infringement of our prerogative to be treated as a, a bit of an officer ashore or afloat we made our own beds or lashed our own hammocks swept our own rooms tended our clothes and blacked our boots our drills were those of men before the mast at sails and guns all parts of a seaman's work except cleaning the ship was required and willingly done but there was a comical rebellion on one occasion when ordered to pull row a boat ashore for some purpose and almost a mutiny when one lieutenant directed us to go barefooted while decks were being scrubbed a practice which besides saving your shoe leather is both healthy cleanly and in warm weather exceedingly comforting some asserted that the lieutenant in question who afterwards commanded one of the confederate commerce destroyers and from his initials james i was known to us as jassi had done this because he had very pretty feet which he liked to show bare and we must do the same much as germans are said to train their moustaches with the emperors at all events there was great wrath which i supposed i should have shared had i not preferred bare feet not for as sound reasons as the lieutenant's it stands to reason however that that imputation was slanderous for there were no appreciative observers unless himself why waste such sweetness on the desert air of a lot of heedless midshipmen with so many details regulated if not enforced from the length of our hair to the cut of our trousers it did seem hypocritical to object to going shoeless for an hour but who is consistent the uncertainty of our position kept the chip on the shoulder end of chapter four